Good evening. Welcome to Starfest, the St. Albert Star, uh, Readers Festival. I'm Peter Midgley, your host for the evening and also the director of the festival. Before we introduce our guests and get going with the evening's events, I do want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting live from Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. Thank you all for joining us. Um, you can purchase tonight's books at or consent from the two local independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop. Please visit the links we have provided online in the uh, comments section and also in the description. So please do go out, buy the books. Authors depend on that. The introductions will come follow after this, and then there will be a 40-minute discussion between our featured authors and our guests, and then that will be followed by a question and answer period. Please post your questions in the comments feature on YouTube, and we will relay them to the guests at the end of the evening. If you are on YouTube, please remember you have to log in to be able to comment. Now, tonight we are being treated to a conversation with between Connie Massing, the current St. Albert Public Library writer-in-residence, and also the author of several plays and an experienced theatre writer for us. And then Annabel Lyon, who many of us know already, having read both The Mean Girl and Sweet... Um, oh gosh, now I'm going The Golden Mean and Sweet Girl. There we go, my head. <laughs> It's been a long festival. Uh, so this is to celebrate her latest book, Consent, which has only recently been released. Annabel Lyon lives in BC, where she teaches creative writing at the University of British Columbia. She, we are absolutely thrilled to have her. It's been a long time coming. Annabel and Connie, welcome to Starfest. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, Annabelle, I think you have your next uh, book title, The Mean Girl. Absolutely, and The Golden Sweet. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, Annabelle, did you want to do um, uh, the land acknowledgement from your neck of the woods? I really would, yeah. So I am coming to you from the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish. Uh, First Nations, also known as Burnaby, British Columbia, uh, suburban Vancouver. And I'm so pleased to be here. Oh, and I use pronouns she and hers. And it really is a treat to be here. I'm, I'm so grateful to all of you who are watching and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Hmm. Thank you. So am I. I am uh, so delighted and honored to be able to talk to you about your beautiful book. Um, it's really smart and thought provoking and tragic and mysterious and also has a wicked sense of humor, uh, which I presume means you have a wicked sense of humor. Um, so those of you, those if you haven't read the book here yet, you're in for a treat, and the rest of you know what I'm talking about. Um, consent is about so many things: grief and guilt and family. And um, but uh, the basic structure of the story is about two sets of sisters whose lives intertwine and intersect in a surprising way. Um, I'm wondering, Annabelle, if you can talk to us about the beginning of the idea, the evolution, the, the origin story, I guess. Sure, thank you, Connie. So, I mean, this uh, story has been 
in my mind for a very long time. Uh, way back in 2004, I started working on a freestanding short story, which ended up becoming, I think it's now the second chapter of this book. Um, it was called Maddie's Husband at the time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, if you like. But, you know, there were a few things that were kind of swirling around and a few different threads that I was trying to braid together at the start of this. Um, one of them, I, a lawyer acquaintance of mine told me uh, about a case that he knew of, of a young woman with a developmental disability who came from quite a wealthy family and got married to a sort of con small time con artist who was after the money the family didn't realize what she was doing and you know they were put in this situation of having to go before a judge and get the marriage annulled on the grounds that the woman could not consent she just did not have the capacity to consent and that's a miserable situation all around because obviously you don't want to have to do that with a family member and it was it was very sad at the same time so as i was turning that over in my head and you know, people who've read the book will recognize there's a similar scenario plays out. But I thought, what if our con man is a little bit more than just a con man? He's not just in it for the money. You know, he's he's more complex than that. He's also finds some solace in this. He's kind to the young woman. He's, you know, thinks he can actually make a go of it in addition to enjoying the money. Um, and then, of course, there's a sister who is in the position of, you know, she has to be the family member who gets the thing annulled. And, you know, thereby making her sister miserable because she thought she was consenting to something that made her really happy. And, you know, to have that taken away without her consent, you know, it's, it becomes this very complicated thing. Uh, at the same time, I was rereading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, because um, I'm a nerd. And I was thinking about the sort of premise of that book. So we've got our main character, Raskolnikov, who's a penniless young student, very kind of high-minded and has all of these high-minded ethical principles and decides that he is going to murder a young uh, an old uh, evil old woman who's a money lender in the neighborhood he decides that you know it's on sort of moral utilitarian grounds it's better for everyone involved if this woman isn't around anymore but of course when he goes to actually commit the act it gets messy right away because it turns out that this evil old money lender is living with her sister who has I think Dostoevsky called her simple-minded, but has a developmental disability and he has to murder both of them. And I thought, oh, what if we were to re-envisage this crime from the women's point of view? You know, is she, what does that mean, evil old moneylender? Like how evil can she be if she's taking care of the sister of hers? You know, he, he talks about her being very suspicious and kind of, you know, not very friendly. And I thought, well, with good reason, she got murdered, you know, by one of these dudes. So she had a pretty good reason to be suspicious. Of course, I told you before we came on, I am perfectly capable of just waffling on and on and on. So you have to cut me off when you want me to. <laughs> of course, if you're going to do a feminist retelling of crime and punishment, you can't kill the women off right away. So I had to tweak a few things. And, you know, the, the sort of the tropes that we recognize from crime and punishment that have become so ubiquitous in detective stories, this idea of sort of returning to the scene of the crime again and again, the, the policeman Porphyry, who is the he's the Columbo, he's the detective who keeps going back and going back and going back to the suspect, you know, and we, that's become the model for so many cops and so many, you know, thrillers going forward. I ended up playing with the idea of stalking. And so he, instead of killing the sisters and then going back to the scene of the crime, he stalks them. He has this relationship that the sister um, 
ends, you know, legally brings an end to, but he can't let them go. So he keeps going back and going back and going back and kind of hovering around the edges of their life. So that was, that's just one set of sisters. But I mean, that's really where it started. And for a long time, I thought the novel was going to be just those two. And it was quite a while before the other set kind of came in, in my mind. And, uh, and did, where did the other sisters come from in, in terms of what made you decide to to pull in a parallel story? I'm really curious about that. So the other two sisters. The other two sisters initially were their own thing. They were, um, I had this idea that I wanted to write a thriller because this is what I love to watch on Netflix, for instance. I love reading thrillers. I love the, the construction. I love the excitement. I love the kind of narrative momentum of a thriller. I love the puzzle. Um, and I thought, oh, I want to try doing that. But at the same time, you know, I was also feeling a bit of sort of self-parody, you know, in that in that urge. And so I, I thought, what are the tropes of a thriller? What are the things that we see again and again? Twins and people mistaking each other for each other and people in comas and, you know, people dressing up as the, like in, that's even in Shakespeare, twins dressing up as each other, right? And I, I sort of started out a little bit tongue in cheek, sort of thinking I'm gonna just throw all of this stuff in there and see what happens. But of course it became more and more, um, subversive and kind of complex. And eventually I realized that I was doing something with this pair that was complementary or was sort of a foil to what I was doing with the other pair. And then they had to come together into the same book. So although they arrived late on the scene, they're of equal weight. I think the two storylines are kind of equal in terms of the importance of them in the overall book. Oh yeah, they sure feel like it. I, I, um, you know, you're describing the the villain and and the complication. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that um, we can't judge people very um, yeah. very easily. Um, the one of the maybe quote unquote villains of the piece, um, who you've already referenced, is really complicated. And I and my feelings about him kept changing, and so I couldn't make an easy judgment. And I think that's where your book goes beyond a lot of um, thrillers and the regulation, the, the conventions of a lot of thrillers that I read is that it was less clear to me who I should feel sympathetic toward. And I that was great. Um, are you able to um, maybe do a bit of a reading for sure. us at this point? Sure, I would be very happy to. So I'm actually going to read off the screen. So I'm hopefully still kind of looking at you. I'm going to read just from the very opening, and then I don't need to, to set this up too much. But you'll get a little brief introduction to the two sets of sisters here. Right. 1977. The baby doesn't cry, but Sarah's mother cries. Everyone is tired, and Sarah is tired of playing nicely in the plash of sun on the carpet, the dust motes turning, while her mother feeds the baby and rocks the baby and mumbles into the phone, the swaddled baby in the crook of her arm. Sarah misses the crook of her mother's arm, and the smell of her, the honeywood smell that comes from the faceted glass bottle on her dresser. She doesn't like the milk smell on her mother or the milk shit smell on her sister. Visitors wear brave, watery smiles and try to elicit brave, watery smiles from Sarah's mother. Something about the baby and the baby's placidity, Sarah gathers, is not quite right. 
The baby is too quiet. The baby sleeps too much. People are gentle and kind and hand the baby back quickly to her mother, who does not rush to take her. They bring big gifts for the baby and small gifts for Sarah, which is unfair and absurd and makes Sarah impatient. Sticker sheets and socks and little books that she's encouraged to read to the baby, which is unfair. Sarah can't read. She has to turn the pages by herself in the plash of sunlight, the dust motes spinning endlessly because her mother cannot. She just cannot read to her right now. When Sarah's father comes home, Sarah's mother goes to bed. Then her father holds the baby in the crook of his arm and scrambles Sarah's eggs with one hand. He reads the new books to her and puts the baby on the floor more than Sarah's mother does so he can play with Sarah. She appreciates this. He smells sourer than her mother and his cheek is rough. She doesn't want to shift allegiances, not really, but what choice does she have? A chokingly sweet smelling older woman comes to visit, Sarah's great aunt. That sounds very grand. She brings another pink bear for the baby, but a big gift for Sarah, a Barbie doll and a child's suitcase filled with clothes. Some of them are the cheap things that came with the doll, plastic netting crinolines and pink pretend silk dresses and white plastic shoes that snap onto her feet. But some were hand-sewn by the great aunt herself for some distant child who has grown up now. Real silk, real velvet, real wool, even real fur. Scraps from real fabrics used to make real clothes. The stitches are tiny, like an elf would make. Fur-trimmed hooded capes, rickrack-edged gowns, little two-piece suits, a tiny boucle peacoat. Sarah sits in her plash of sunlight, turning the little clothes this way and that, dressing and undressing the Barbie. She is a very good girl. That scent is roses, her mother tells her once the great aunt has left. The difference between roses and her mother's honeywood fascinates her. She sniffs back and forth from the doll's clothes to her mother's sleeve again and again, trying to recapture the bursting surprise of a beautiful thing that has nothing of her mother in it. The next day, her father brings her a little bottle of scent for her own self from the drugstore because her mother asked him to. Then she loves her mother again. <laughs> so that was the first set of sisters. And here's the second set. 1998. You're not the boss of me, they used to tell each other as children. Saskia and Jenny, Jenny and Saskia. Same size, same face, same stubbornness. Their own father couldn't reliably tell them apart until they were five. You're not the boss of me. Yes, twins, their mother would tell strangers who stopped to admire their dark eyes, their curls. Their mother was always smiling tiredly. She wasn't the boss either, though she knew them better than their father. Knew them well enough that when she sat on the sofa as the afternoon light drained away and Jenny would say, Jenny's upstairs, Jenny's hurt. Their mother would sip from her glass without looking at her and say, that's very funny, nice try. Really, I'm Saskia, Jenny would say. I'm resting, okay, their mother would say. Try to understand. She didn't fall for it. Jenny would tell Saskia upstairs, where she lay on the bed, pretending to be Jenny. 
Saskia had known she wouldn't fall for it, but it was easier to let Jenny play her games. What do you want to do now? Jenny would say, jumping up. I know, let's try on her clothes. We can put music on and dress up and pretend to... I want to read. That's boring. Play with me. You have to play with me or I'll set your book on fire. She would, too, in the bathroom sink with the barbecue lighter. She'd got a spanking last time, but it would not deter her from doing it again. Only Saskia could save her by giving in. That was her one power. Still, you're not the boss of me. A lie. Jenny always got what she wanted. Always. She could twist Saskia into any trouble she wanted. Jenny's eyes sparkled. Saskia was serious. That was how you told them apart. I'll stop there. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Lovely. Um, there are a lot of parallels between the worlds of these two sets of sisters. Um, um, some that I clocked, uh, grief and guilt, um, mm -hmm. academia. Um, there's some involvement in academia on both sides, um, in both sets of sisters. Alcoholism. <laughs> and um, complicated mothers, uh, mm -hmm. one who is uh, one of the mothers who's very, um, I guess, uh, Sarah's mother. Racist? Yeah, racist. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> that's the word you're looking for, yeah. Racist and yet loving. And again, these complicated characters, You, we rush to judge these people and then realize they have all these other aspects to them. So it's great. Um, one of the other things, one of the things I was really fascinated by in terms of, and it's something that turns up in both these worlds, in both sets of sisters, is the focus on um, fashion and design and clothing in, um, it, you know, um, haute couture is very important to the character of Sarah as she it grows into ad adulthood. And the, there's some great descriptions of her um, yearning, uh, for and acquiring incredible high fashion items in Paris and <clears throat> in the other <clears throat> set of sisters, um, uh, one of the sisters is an interior designer, right? But also a uh, very fashion focused and um, very attractive and interested in presenting yourself in a particular way. Um, can you talk about the significance of that focus in both of those worlds. It's something that's really interesting to me because I think that fashion is so often, you know, dismissed or seen as trivial or seen as surface. And, you know, when you confess that you are interested in that, the first thing people do is kind of look you up and down and look at what you're wearing. And honestly, there's nothing great going on here. I'm wearing jeans and slippers. Um, I am wearing pants, I promise. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what interests me at the, like Sarah, at the sort of very highest level of, of design, you get real artists, I think. You get people who are doing sculpture with clothing. You get people like, you know, an Iris Van Herpen in Holland who's working at the cutting edge of technology and incorporating that. Incorporating that. You get a, a Rei Kawakubo who's doing something very kind of deconstructed in Japan. Um, Alexander McQueen, who's making sort of social and political commentary with what he's doing. And that's really interesting to me. At the same time, I think that there is, you know, you know, clothes can be so many things. They can be a kind of armor, you know, and we all know this. Um, 
we've all probably got an outfit in our closet when that we're going to wear when we go to ask the boss for a raise or when we go for that job interview that we really want or for when we want to you know project something about ourselves um we've got clothes that we wear when we want to look vulnerable we've got clothes that we wear on that really special date um you know we use clothes to convey messages in ways that i think are very interesting we use them to protect ourselves we use them uh you know, I think Sarah definitely uses them as another form of addiction. She is an alcoholic and she also sort of self-soothes with her sort of aesthetic interests as well. So she becomes very obsessed with clothing and particularly high-end clothing. And she very much sort of intellectualizes it, uses it as a wedge to drive between her and her sister. You know, it's this interest that she has that she doesn't have to try and share with the with her sister who can't understand it. Um, yeah, it's 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 not entirely healthy for Sarah, um, and she uses it to try and say something about herself. She wants to have the best. She wants to have things other people don't have. She wants to have you know these unique vintage designer pieces because they sort of speak to her of her own kind of aesthetic and intellect and taste in a way that is reassuring to her. Um, but also tells us, I think, something about her vulnerabilities and her frailties. And then with the twins, it's just one of them's really glamorous and outgoing, and also self-destructive in the end. And the other one um, just wears MEC and like Gore-Tex and runners and things all the time. And again, it's it's identities that they're carving out from each other. Yeah. I love the notion of self-soothing with fashion, which they both, which uh, two of the women for sure uh, do in the story, which is really even the, the sister who is not as interested in fashion um, without giving anything away later in the book, she sort of takes on some of the trappings in a really creepy, wonderful way. I think um, I already knew that one. I think I already gave it away. And so oh, good. she's going to dress up as her sister for a certain period of time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved it. Um, yeah. I think, um, I think I, I heard you say in some, I, I'm going to, you know, here I am, I'm going to try to channel Sheila Rogers. Um, uh, I think in some context, I heard you say that um, clothing, or maybe she said it in reference to your book, clothing is all tangled up with the notion of consent, yeah. which I thought was really interesting, which will take lead us back to the title and other discussions about your, the themes of your book. But um can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. I mean, there's it 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 comes up in obvious ways if we're we're looking at this idea of sexual consent in the context of Me Too and that kind of thing. When we look at cases of sexual assault, you know, there's always that question, well, what was she wearing? You know, as though that somehow could explain things one way or the other. Um there are also, you know, with uh with the clothing, I wanted to sort of point to ways in which we're constantly giving or withholding consent or having things happen to us without our consent all the way through the day. And I, I've been saying a lot to people in publicizing this book, sort of do a little thought experiment. Think from the moment you woke up this morning to now, how many times did you give consent to something? And it comes up a lot in Sarah's context with the fashion. You know, she becomes obsessed with this one particular store and the woman who runs this store is, you know, sort of handles her in, in very sort of, intimate ways that she's not necessarily consenting to, but she tolerates it because she thinks she's going to get something from it in the end. Um, we see her 
at a certain point give a very beautiful piece of clothing to her sister who doesn't really understand what it is. So is there a piece of consent missing there? Um, yeah, it is all very tangled up for me. And it's I want to stress too that that title goes beyond sexual consent. I mean, that's definitely a part of it in both stories of both sisters. But it became bigger and bigger the more I worked on it. It became um, it became something in relation to caregiving, for instance, and when we can consent to being caregivers, because in each pair of sisters, we've got the caregiver and the one in need of care for very different reasons. You know, And when it's your family member, when it's someone you love, of course, you jump right in and you say, oh, they need help. I will help them. I am there for them. I will do it. And you don't even think about it. And then after the fact, if things don't go tremendously well, or if it's a burden, or if you realize it's not the best thing for either of you, it's really difficult to talk about. And it's really difficult to say, I actually you know, shouldn't have consented to this, or I didn't consent to this. So that became really interesting to me. Um, addiction, of course, and consent is another kind of interesting aspect. So it just kept kind of ballooning and growing and growing. Um, consent in the in the context of somebody with a with a disability, you know, when they believe that they're giving consent, and somebody else is saying, no, you actually aren't. You know, what does that look like? And that actually comes up a couple of times. I, I won't uh, give anything too much away, but it it does come up a second time in the novel too, where somebody consents to something or thinks they're consenting to something, and it ends up not being quite the thing they thought they were consenting to. So, you know, it just became this very big amorphous thing that kind of touched and stained every aspect of the characters' lives. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of my questions as I was reading it and thinking about consent was, when are we in a position to give consent? Uh, because in some cases, and maybe, I'm, I'm, I don't think sexual consent is, is um, simple by any means, but seems to be set out in more black and white terms. But there are so many other, uh, as you say, so many other different things that we consent to. And, and are we always able to be the best judge of what we should consent to? Well, and who gets to tell us, no, your consent isn't actually meaningful? Who gets to say that to us? You know, and, and you can think about that in any number of contexts, like, you know, I I want you know, just to throw a controversial one out there. But if you sort of say I want to consent to, you know, being given an abortion, and somebody says no, you're not allowed to consent. To, you know, somebody who wants to overturn Roe versus Wade says no, you're not allowed to consent to that. That's you don't get to have that own sort of charge of your own body. You know, that that can be a way in which we view that as well. So you know, I think it it becomes really interesting who gets to grant it and who gets to withhold it. And it was really interesting to me. I have to say that the title of this book was one of the very last pieces that fell into place. And when I first proposed it, there was a lot of sort of trepidation and people were saying in the in the publishing house, well, it's not really a me too book though, is it? And I thought, oh, how interesting, because we're now we're going to gatekeep Me Too. And we're going to say, well, Me Too is for those women, but not those women. You know, it's not it's not the same. You know, and I thought, eh, yeah. you know, let's go right in there. Let's have that conversation, because it is interesting in the context of disability. It is very interesting in the context of S&M, for instance, which is something that's going to come up with with one of the sisters, too. You know, what does consent mean? No, wait, what does it really mean? You know, and the more you dig down the muddier it gets. Oh yeah, and it's never, it's, uh, the book never um, comes down firmly on one side or the other. It just explores all these great, explores and raises all these great questions. Your title made me think um, 
there's a quote from, uh, it's a, he's an American playwright, his name's David Ives, I think this is his quote, but um, he says uh, to playwrights, the title is a prom a title is a promise to the audience, which I always just think is a great thing to remember about titles. And, um, you know, I mean, of course, in terms of marketing titles are important, but also, uh, expectations you're setting up what what initial impression or what do people imagine it's going to be so i i think um the fact that uh i mean you have more more than fulfilled the promise to the audience i think in that um there are so many different versions of consent because i think yes our our mind automatically goes to uh, the version of consent that's been most in the news um and there's so much more going on in this book in terms of that. Yeah. It's both and, I hope. Very much sort of both and, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted, wanted to say one of the things I mentioned to you before we were sort of on air here, I was so struck by the sensory detail in the book um, and um, a lot of it really stayed with me. Um, but the role of, I just, it's really interesting the role of smell or scent uh, in the, the, there's a lot of references to perfume, but the role of smell or scent as a trigger um, uh, or as a kind of portal to um, memory and, and other, other aspects. Um, it's really powerful and interesting in the book. And again, lots of um, detail about particular kinds of perfume and then they they play a function in the plot but just uh curious about where that came from for you or what the significance of that is i mean that's an interest of mine as well and and as with fashion there's there's different approaches to perfumery and you get the sort of mass market sweet things at sephora and then you get people who are doing really cutting edge weird kind of artistic stuff where it's like i'm gonna have something that smells like cigarette butts and frangipani and some sesame seeds yeah. and you know it's like what what are you doing and what i love about this is you know as with clothing it really makes you question well what is pretty what does that mean why do i want to be pretty why do i want to smell nice what does nice mean is it food do i want to smell like food there's a whole stream in perfumery of the gourmand you know the of the foodie smelling things is it is it a floral is it a citrus what do these things mean traditionally certain flowers were associated with certain female professions and um one of the things that was really scandalous about chanel number no. five was that she took a flower that was associated with prostitution and put it into that perfume um mixed with rose which was considered a very prim and proper you know so you know all of these sorts of threads these is you can't separate them you know when we talk about these things the political is there, the history is there, our own sort of assumptions about, well, this is for men, this is for women, you know, what, what does that mean exactly? You know, and it's likewise with clothing, you know, why, what am I, what am I thinking when I think this is appropriate, this is not appropriate, this is modest, or this is not modest, you know, what does that mean? And why does that matter? I think that, you know, it is a very intellectual thing. Um, 
And at the same time, I'm sort of revealing a little bit of my inner Sarah and feeling that I have to somehow justify an interest in fashion. I also just like nice things. <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> that is shocking, Annabelle. Shocking. I um, do. And I, I learned there's one little sort of plot point in there where um, there's a character who's a violinist and um, one of the scent triggers is a bottle of perfume that you know, one of the other characters thought had disappeared a long, long time ago. And then she smells it off his off his violin and realizes, like, wait, what? And he said, no, I, I use it to clean the rosin off my bow. And one of my kids was learning the cello. And we had to go out and get a little thing of perfume to clean the rosin off the bow. This is the apparently the way that you do it. And so I couldn't resist putting that in there. Oh, no, it's lovely. I, I um... the body shop, though. We didn't go to Hermes, which is... <laughs> Anyway, all these personal revelations, I can't stand it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that I mean, I, I, it's interesting. Um, there's all the the enjoyment of the sensory detail, but but I think also um, the role that it plays in the plot, those moments when you have that that smack in the face realization or epiphany because of a smell. Uh, that is so connected to memory, and there's a couple of points in the in the book when it it's quite instrumental in the plot. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I was I was um, really enjoyed. You t you talked earlier about about wanting to write a thriller. I really enjoyed the point in the book where it felt like the material sort of shape shifted. And I realized we were in a full-on mystery, right? And that there was a sense of tension before that. I knew all was not right, and and that has been built throughout. But there was a certain point, and I could actually, I know exactly where it is for what it's worth, um, when I thought, oh, hang on, there's a mystery to be solved here. And it really pulls us through that um, last quarter of the book. You're wow. talking about the moment where those two storylines finally converge. Yeah. 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 That moment was a surprise to me too in the writing of it, honestly. Are you thinking of where, where Saskia is sitting in the car? And there's a cell phone that was lost for a long time and she finally finds it and she's kind of looking at it and there's a revelation and I'm not going to say too much more, but yeah, I was, I, I remember when I wrote that and I kind of looked at it and I thought, no, I can't pull that off. Can I, yeah. is this going to work? And yeah, it was, it was a surprise to me too. Well, see that now that's something I want to ask you. This is I know I think there are probably a lot of people in the audience who are writers. Mm. Um, and so I want to ask you a kind of geeky writer question in relation to that. So um, a friend of mine who writes murder mysteries revealed to me that um, she and I was really surprised by this. She said, well, you know, I don't always plan out the ending. I'm I'm a more of a uh, yeah, exactly. She said, I'm more of a pantser. I said, what? She said, a seat of the panther versus versus a, a plotter. And then uh, another analogy was raised around the same time I, that I sort of stored away. Someone telling me that they thought there was a big difference between people who are architects, like planners, outliners, um, versus gardeners. Like, I'll just, yeah, I'll just kind of fool around in this area and see what it leads to. So I'm fascinated to hear you say that. Um, so, so I guess the question is, how much of that it was planned, that direction in which the story went. Yeah. So I am 
I am squarely in the, I can't even say architect camp because it's not that glorious. I'm a plotter and a plotter at the same time, I think. Like I'm a very deliberate outliner. It's a very controlled process for me. I like to know where I'm going at every point. And I think the only reason that this book diverged from that is because I had half of the story. I had the one storyline complete first. And then once I realized I had to braid the other one in, there became some space for surprise, which normally wouldn't be there. Um, and then as soon as I realized, okay, this is how I want to bring them together at that point, I put everything down. The moment that we just talked about where I was like, no, I can't do that, can I? <laughs> my, my solution to that is, okay, I'm going to go outline it and see if I can make it work. So I put it down at that point and went and tried to plan out the remainder of the book. So I'm very I'm very cold-blooded about, about plotting. I'm not a pantser at all. I'm not... I'm not a big believer in the muse. I'm not, you know, I, I don't wait for inspiration because it never comes. I feel like you just got to, you've got to be a little bit more analytical about it because that's how you keep moving forward. And then you can be open when those moments come. But, you know, most of writing is not those moments. Most of writing is just putting your bum in your chair and doing the work, whether you feel like it or not. Right? You know this, Connie. Totally, totally agreed. Yeah, if I waited for the muse, I mean, deadlines help. Um, for sure, but a lot of it is about um, sticking to some kind of routine and hoping yeah. that hoping it works out, hoping something comes, hoping you're able to advance your project, right? Yeah. And even on those days when you've written and you sort of think, oh, this is terrible, this is no good, like it's, I know this is not going to make it into the last, I think you still have to stop and say, you know what, I made something today. I made something that wasn't there yesterday and maybe it's not the perfect thing, but it's the thing that's going to let me move forward with my project. And because we are an iterative art as writers, you know, we're not a performing art. We don't get just one shot at it. We can go over and over and refine and refine and correct and correct. And, you know, I wish I could take the sort of language of, of negativity out of the early drafting process where we say, oh, it's garbage. It's a puke draft. That's something that people say about first drafts. Like it just, bleh, just came out. And I want to say it's like a newborn baby. Like, do you look at a newborn baby and say, ew, like, ew, it's squishy and purple and smelly and screaming, like, gross. Or do you say, that's amazing. Like, you had a baby and it's full of promise and we don't know where it's going to be, you know, a year from now or five years from now. But, like, there's so much potential there that, you know, who cares if it's ugly and smelly and squishy? Like, Indeed. Well, yeah, I always think with a first draft, it's just important to get from one end to the other. Yep. And not and agree then, more. Because because uh, I really like rewriting, but you need a basis with which to do that. And and for sure, I don't I don't show my first draft to a lot of people. I don't know. No. Um, yeah, but but you have to start somewhere, right? Um, where are we at, Peter? Do we have um, questions no keep going yeah yeah um well great we if people have questions so i think they should feel free to to take them in right yeah i'm well, happy to take questions should we should we do that now peter i can't tell no. he's 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 I making think he's that there, there aren't any and i just want to say to the audience but you know if you have some don't be shy i see we all had our little course in semaphore and, uh, you know, very, uh, <laughs> online signals before this. And I completely misinterpret that. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I, something else I can tell you about the book actually was that, um, I had to do a last minute kind of rejig because of COVID the thing that's thrown us all into zoom. 
I thought I was being very clever in the writing of it. And I actually um, had it ending shortly after when I knew the book was going to be coming out. So I knew the book was slated to come out in September of 2020, and it, which it did. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be all smart and I'm going to end it in 2021. And it's going to feel like this. People are reading. It's happening right now. And then, of course, it was all written and complete before COVID struck. And then my editor kind of came and said, people are going to think it's really weird that you've got it set in COVID times and there's no nobody's got COVID and they're, they're going to restaurants and things, all that crazy stuff we used to do, right? So we had to oh. actually go in at the last minute and sort of reel all the dates back a little bit so that it was oh. still, um, so that people wouldn't get that kind of, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for, that that dissonance of, of sort of thinking that this is somehow a COVID world with no COVID in it. Oh, things you have to do, right? Really? Well, you know, um, speaking of rewrites and changes, I was going to ask you, I, I hear a rumor. I hear a rumor that uh, you said after you had uh, gone through the publishing and editorial pub, uh, process with this, that you were never going to put a cell phone <laughs> in a book again. And nope. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, I have all new respect, I have to say, for thriller writers and, and detective novelists and, and people who can construct these things with all these little moving parts. They're like little Swiss watches. And I throw in one gimmick. I throw in one cell phone. So the idea is that it's the uh, the very outgoing twin who's kind of self-destructive. Her cell phone goes missing at a certain point and everybody's kind of looking for it and it doesn't show up and it doesn't show up. And then finally, after quite a long time, over a year, the thing shows up again. And it turns out to have some very interesting stuff on it, which kind of affects how the plot's going to move forward. And I thought I'd been very clever in coming up with this. And then the questions started coming from my Canadian editor and my American editor and my agent and the proofreader. And it's like, why is the phone still charged after all of that time? Why wasn't it password protected? Why was she able to just open it and see what was inside there? Why couldn't they have just used find my phone to find the phone? Um, who was paying the phone bill on this phone that had gone missing? Like, why was it still? Ugh. I feel like the last, like, I keep saying the last 20% of, of brain power that I had to devote to this book went to solving all of these problems with the cell phone. And, you know, at a certain point, I was just like, can't we just pretend that it was still trash? And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. And it's like, no, of course you can't do that because audiences are smart and, you know, they'll spot all those things. But never again, never again am I using a cell phone as a device like that. That's not, not worth the heartache. Well, it's interesting because, oh, Peter's saying we have a question, I think. Uh, I was just going to say that... Um, that I think in some genres like television and film, the impact of being able to use cell phones. I mean, I think it's been a great boon to storytelling in some ways and in other ways, it just, um, it, it, it's harder to create constraints and conflicts because people are so accessible all the time. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Did we have a question, Peter. Yeah, so I think that's what's happening. Yeah. Yes, I do. There's EK here asks, uh, about the character names and how you've come up with the with the various character names in this book. Oh, that's an interesting one. Nobody's asked me that before, EK. Thank you for that question. Um, huh. <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, when I get really in a jam with character names, I'll go to those sort of baby naming websites and I'll just look at names and just kind of read and read and read names and try and come across something. But often I think they just, they, they just, 
I just hear them and I think, yeah, in my sort of the inner ear and sort of think, yeah, that's right. Definitely with the character of Maddie, I wanted her to have um, a name that was kind of short and a little bit cute, but also a, sort of a, an endearing version of a different name because I think it, it says in early on in that chapter, she went from being Maddie Landau to Martha Dwyer after she got married. And I really wanted to draw that demarcation line between, you know, who she was to the family and then who she was on this piece of paper that said she'd gotten married. So I needed a name that could do that. Um, Sarah, just a simple, straight up. Uh, Jenny and Saskia, gosh, I don't even remember now where that came from. <laughs> this is not very helpful, is it? But I mean, I just, I, I tend to, yeah, no, I don't know. They just, they just come. That's not a very satisfying answer, is it? But the baby names, if you're a writer and you're you're looking for, and you find that that's something that stumps you, um, look at those baby name websites. And they can be useful too, because you find the language that they come from. You know, is this a culturally appropriate name for the character that I want? What does this name mean in whatever language it comes from? And does that have sort of overtones or, that are, or subtext that is suitable for this character? So I'd like to recommend that to, to people who are sort of, if that's something that they struggle with, I find those resources are helpful. Yeah, I agree. I it's um, it's only a, about three projects ago that I actually thought to do that to look uh, at the meaning of baby names, and it was really useful because I found um, at least on one website that the name Karen meant pure, and it was absolutely perfect oh. for because it was something. It was a name I'd already been thinking about, and it reinforced something. Um, I think what you're describing sounds to me like the only way I can um, think of it is that sometimes you get a feeling of rightness, that something is just, that's the right choice and you just feel it and there's no, not, not always logic to it. You know, your writer's instinct tells you that's the right name. That, I mean, I started life as a musician. I, before I knew that I wanted to be a writer, I, was I studied piano and um, I, I do, when I say here, I do mean here, like there's a musical kind of aspect to it for me as well. And I'll very often sort of be writing a sentence and think, okay, I need a two syllable adjective here because it meets the, the rhythm, right? Ah. Without actually sort of knowing what necessarily that word needs to be. And I think it's similarly with names, like I, it's just the, the music of them. So I don't really want to make it into something mystical like, she spoke to me in a dream and told me her name was Saskia. It's like, no, I wanted her to have a name that was a little bit unusual. Um, I wanted Jenny to have a name that sort of suggested her approachableness. And, and yeah, just uh, it's, it's hard to sort of talk about, but with pro style and with, with rhythm particularly, it's, it's very much about the sound. That's another big one. I'm sure you teach this too, Connie, especially coming from playwriting, but always read aloud what you're writing, whether oh, yeah. it's dialogue or, or not dialogue, you know, always read it aloud and you'll find those rhythms and those, those assonances and consonances and, you know, those sorts of things that you wouldn't notice just doing it with your eye. I think the ear is a, is a really big part of writing. I couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, of course, reading dialogue aloud, uh, that is maybe a more obvious kind of exercise, but I think it it's really wonderful with prose as well. Peter, are you are you joining us? I think I, I see. I believe so. Yes, I am. Um, am I live now? Yes, I'm live again. <laughs> 
That sounds kind of creepy, but, but which actually is a good segue into the next question from Linda Turand, uh, who says, what a great read. There was a, quite a bit of death in this book. Is that because you were used to the thriller genre? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, I think it goes back to sort of the crime and punishment origins of it. You know, someone had to die at a certain point um, if I was being true to, to that. So, and then I thought if I'm going to have these parallels, if I'm going to have a crime in each of the storylines, you know, they have to, as a writer, you sort of think, okay, they narratively, they have to have equal weight. I can't have a death in one and a, you know, she got mugged in the other one or whatever, you know, so there had to be two deaths. And then it became then a process of, uh, for one character in particular, I wanted her to become more and more and more isolated. And so I had to peel away all the people around her. And so there was some more death there. There was, there were some betrayals where she just decided, you know, and she was, she was a character who would just draw these really stark lines and sort of say, nope, you're not in my life anymore. And by the end, she's she's all alone. And that was something that I found very haunting. And you know, the way to get there necessarily involved involved some death. And yeah, I mean, it is true to the genre as well. Um, and and the idea of of crime and consent again was really something that I I, I don't want to give away the ending, but it was really something that I wanted to play with. And you know, could you consent to? Uh, no, I'm going to give it away if I say any more, so I won't. But thank you for that question. All right. And I, I think people are still still very busy reading the book because it is so recent. But uh, yes, it is it is a fun read. And I, um, at this point, I'm going to ask you, is, Bonnie, do you have any last questions you want to fire off before we do our closing? Uh I don't know if this is a question, but I just wanted to comment that another thing that I found really intriguing about the book was the um, these family relationships. I mean, there's the complicated mothers, but the relationships between the sisters, I really appreciated what felt really authentic, uh, which was that there is such a range of feeling in those relationships, uh, guilt, dislike, irritation, all in the context of love, but it felt um, uh, it felt very authentic to me, um, and almost in a way uh, edging into some kinds of taboo uh, about how we're meant to talk about loved ones and siblings. And so, I don't know if that's not actually a question, Annabelle. So, I don't know what you're going to do. With and that, women but. in particular, too. I think, like you know, it's 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 harder. It's harder for women to, I think, even still nowadays, um, to show unlikable parts of themselves or to yeah. say no, no matter the context, you know, whether we're talking about sex, whether we're talking about caregiving, whether we're talking about, you know, whatever it might be. It's it's harder, I think, for for women to I'm not sure how to how to capture it exactly, but to to be ugly to be mean, to be um, angry. That's a big one for me. You know, it's, there's still a taboo against women being angry that they're somehow hysterical or they're, or they're um, not themselves or they're, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, no, sometimes women are angry 
for good reason. You know, sometimes women behave in ways that are we would think of more conventionally as as male. And if a if a dude did it, it'd be fine. And if a woman does it, it's there's something wrong. And you know, those sorts of things interested me too. The idea of a woman who is a predator is something that's that's interesting to me. The idea of a woman being the one in control is something interesting to me. So um, it gets it gets kind of. I hope it it looks at uh, a sort of. I don't want to say a darker side because again, that sort of contributes to that stigma, right? But to say there is this other side to who we are in loving family relationships. And, you know, I think it's healthy to acknowledge that and it's healthy to acknowledge the sort of full humanity and the, the full range of emotions. So I don't want to say it's the dark side, but it's a, it's a gritty side. It's a realistic side. Yep. Oh, I think so. Sort of glorious uh, dysfunction. <laughs> Messiness, glorious messiness. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. Peter, yeah, I, I'm. I, uh, go ahead, Connie. Finish. I was just going to say, it, uh, I just want to thank you, Annabelle. It's been so great, after being a fan for many years, to actually sit in a in a little virtual room and uh, get to speak to you about your lovely book. And so, it's been my well, pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure for me. And I want to say a big thank you to, to, you know, the festival and Peter and Connie and, you know, all of you who came to, to sort of listen to me, as I say, waffle on, um, it was such a privilege and go support your indie booksellers, you know, whether it's my book or whether it's another book, it doesn't matter. Go support your indie booksellers. Right. And, uh, uh, yes, I completely agree. It's been it's such a pleasure to have both of you in here and, there was a quick last question, but I do think we have covered that during the conversation, and that was more about the writing process. And you, you had spoken about you, you don't believe in the muse and how you plot a, a plotter rather than a panther, and that. So I think we have covered that question in there. What I will say is, I invite you to go and re-watch the video because there will be a lot to learn from it and take away from it. There was a, a an awful lot of good material here. So yes, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both around and conversation. And Connie, we have conversations to carry on with. We, we're fortunately, we're relatively close. So um, yeah. And Annabelle, yes, thank you very much. And like Connie, a fan of, of your other books and looking forward to, to finishing up with consent, which I'm still busy with. So please, thank you for not, and thank you for not giving away too much there. So a final reminder again, yes, you can buy consent at our indie bookstores, Glass Bookshop and Audrey's Books. And again, once more, thank you to our tech team who make this magic happen for us and make us all look good online. And please, Keep visiting Starfest. The videos are online. And I do have some final good news to share with you. And that is for those who stuck with us from the beginning, we have managed to reschedule the Jesse Thistle interview. We will be broadcasting at 6.30 on November the 9th. We hope you will to see you there. So from me then, good night. <laughs> <laughs>